G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We are finally back from a month-long break. We missed you all, and hopefully you've been looking forward to this season just as much as we have, have, has, have all of them. Yeah, it's great to be back, Chris, and I don't know who's been looking forward to our coverage of Genesis 6 more, me or the audience. It's going to be amazing. And, of course, I'm also excited about tackling the giant questions that our listeners have been sending in. Yeah, for those listeners who are just tuning in to us for the first time, this podcast is based on and in some ways expands upon the material in Tim's book, Answers to Giant Questions, a great book, which you can get on Amazon. It's a, it's a really awesome read and has been described as a fantastic resource for anyone interested in studying the biblical giants. So that's going to go hand in hand with the material that we cover, especially in the first part of Genesis chapter 6, as we travel verse by verse through the chapter over the course of this season of the podcast. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Thanks for the plug. But I would also strongly recommend that our new listeners take the time to go back through the back catalogue of this podcast because we've covered so much ground already and a lot of it is going to be foundational to what we talk about this season. And since we haven't got the time to explain all that again, it's definitely worthwhile catching up on those previous episodes. Yeah, and you might even find that the question you have has already been answered in a previous Q&A. You can actually search through the material on the website, which is giantanswers.com, and there are links to stuff that covers whatever you might be looking for if we have already talked about it on the show. Yeah, that's right. The website is slowly becoming a great resource for finding those answers, but there's still so much to talk about. So if you can't find what you're looking for on the website, you can use the contact form to drop us a line and submit a giant question for us to talk about on the show. Speaking of questions, you recently did another interview on the Myths, Mysteries and Majesty channel on YouTube. How was that? Oh, yeah, that was great. I spent a bit over two hours talking with Nicola, the host of the show. He's a great host, by the way, about giants, archaeology, the conquest of Canaan, all sorts of cool stuff. We'll probably do it again. So, yeah, if you missed that one, the channel is Myths, Mysteries and Majesty on YouTube. Check it out. So let's actually talk about what we've covered already over the past five seasons just by way of a quick recap. Sure, that's a good idea. Last season, we were talking about how the chronology presented through the use of the age of the patriarchs was designed, at least in the original Hebrew version, which was faithfully preserved in the Greek translation, to point toward the foundation of the original temple to Yahweh, which is built by King Solomon as the centre of Israel's cult and orthodox worship. That was something which the author of Genesis 1 clearly had in mind because he presents the creation of the cosmos as the establishment of a temple and the foundation of the working week as the basis of Israelite daily life and ritual observance. One of the things that stood out way back in season one when we were talking about Creation was the way that the celestial bodies were intended to assist in guiding God's people into correct worship of Yahweh by marking times and seasons. And when we talked about first Enoch, we saw that authors in the second temple period considered that the stars had perhaps deviated from their natural courses in symbolic terms, which meant that the sons of God had transgressed against the boundaries that God had put in place for them. And that's going to be a major element of the story that we are about to unpack this very season. Yeah, absolutely. 
we're also going to find as we go through Genesis 6 that we cover a lot of the same ground in terms of the historical events of Genesis 4 and 5 from a new perspective. When we looked at Genesis 4, we were watching the outcome of the fall in the Garden of Eden playing out across the scope of human civilization. And the story of Genesis 5 was man's best efforts to remain faithful to God under the circumstances, which would have been ultimately futile if it were not for Noah. So Noah's going to be a central character in Genesis 6 and, of course, throughout the flood story. But what we'll need to keep in mind is Noah's representative function in the narrative where he does God's will because God is really the central character of the flood narrative. The significance of Noah is tied in his identity as God's image bearer. And we're going to see that in his obedience to the word of God. In that way, we're going to see how Noah becomes a better version of Adam, which was the whole thrust of the genealogical connection between the two through Genesis 5. When we looked at Genesis 2 and 3, what we learned was that it was the passive nature of Adam that led to his downfall, because passivity leads to giving in to passion, which ultimately manifests in selfish ambition, becoming the driving factor in the life of the individual, and that's really where the sinful nature lies. It's not about eating a fruit as much as it is about failing to deny yourself the good things that God is reserving for your maturity and future blessing. It's that innate self-preservation instinct abused and oriented toward personal gratification at the expense of right relationship with God. But the fall of man is just one piece of the puzzle, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Chris, because the fall does not account for the widespread worship of other gods and the enmity against God that comes out as we go through the rest of the primeval history. It introduces the problem of sin, but it doesn't talk about how humanity became so depraved and helpless. We talked way back in our very first episode of the podcast about how the primeval history is designed to be something like a prequel to a movie. Israel already knew the story of their own history from Abraham onward, but that didn't give them the power to be able to explain the state of affairs that they found themselves in during the exile in Babylon, and human sin formed only a part of that explanation. The next piece of the puzzle was to work out what to make of the mythology of the Babylonians who insisted that their gods had made them the great masters of civilization in the world, that their own gods were responsible for the creation of the world and the greatness of the Babylonian people. Israel needed an answer to both the problem of human depravity in terms of sinful sex and violence in the culture that surrounded them, and also an answer to the problem of idolatry. Genesis 6 forms an essential part of the response to these issues and sets up a biblical framework for understanding how it is that Israel ended up in the situation they found themselves in. So in that sense, Genesis 6 provides a third telling of the story of humanity before the flood. You're saying that the story of humanity has already been presented twice, presumably Genesis 4 and 5? Yeah, that's right. Genesis 4 gives us an initial view of the depravity of mankind accelerated through his abuse of the technologies of civilization. In this narrative, the placement of the story is designed to lead to the conclusion that this way of living is futile because it has no future beyond the flood. However, the story does depict the post-flood Babylonian way of life as seen by Israel, and it does so in a way that allows the Jewish audience to see themselves in the same position. Then in Genesis 5, we turn our attention to the line of the righteous patriarchs. And again, human pre-flood history has played out, but this time from the perspective of the good guys. They have their ups and downs, but for the most part, they're concerned with the state of the world around them and preserve a message of hope for the righteous and impending judgment for the wicked. Both lines begin with characters who introduce certain traits that get exemplified at the end of their respective genealogies. In the case of Cain, we end up with Lamech, who's bent on vengeance, abuse of power, and the pursuit of greed. In the case of Adam through Seth, we discover that Noah fulfills Adam's duty as God's image bearer, as we'll see, by being obedient to the word of God. Of course, we have to realize that the lines of Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 both begin with Adam, which means that we're going to have to come to terms with our own decisions and how the story of our lives will be told. Are we going to be the good guys or the bad guys? That's something to think about. Noah's obedience to God's word doesn't come out fully until we get through Genesis 6. 
But the main character in this chapter isn't a human being, it's God himself. Noah functions as an extension of God by doing his will. Genesis 6 is going to be especially significant as we start to come to terms with a God who has feelings and nuanced emotions. The God of the Bible isn't some wooden figure who swings between mercy and rage on a whim. And this is something we'll have to realise as we take in the flood story. This season is going to be so interesting, I can't wait to get started. Well, perhaps we should kick it off with a reading of Scripture. Let's read Genesis chapter 6 from beginning to end. To give us a refresher on the content of this amazing chapter, what I'm going to do is I'll begin the reading in the same way that the Greek translation does, which is to begin with the introduction of Noah in the story. Oh, yeah, that's right. You were saying last season in the Septuagint, chapter 5, verse 32, is actually in chapter 6, verse 1. So the flood story begins with the introduction of Noah and his sons. Yeah, and I just think that's a much more coherent reading of the narrative. And it also goes some way towards showing us how it was interpreted in the Second Temple period. I like the way that it has the effect of grounding the flood narrative in this historical setting that the author presents. So here's our reading of Genesis chapter 6, taken from the New English translation of the Septuagint. And Noah was 500 years of age, and Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it came about when humans began to become numerous on the earth that the daughters also were born to them. Now when the sons of God saw the daughters of humans, that they were fair, they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. And the Lord God said, My spirit shall not abide in these humans forever, because they are flesh, but their days shall be 120 years. Now the giants were on the earth in those days and afterward. When the sons of God used to go into the daughters of humans, then they produced offspring for themselves. Those were the giants that were of old, the renowned humans. And when the Lord God saw that the wicked deeds of humans were multiplied on the earth and that all think attentively in their hearts on evil things all the days, then God considered that he had made humankind on the earth and he thought it over. And God said, I will wipe out from off the earth humankind which I have made from human to domestic animal, and from creeping things to birds of the sky, for I have become angry that I have made them. Yet Noah found favour before the Lord God. Now these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, being perfect in his era. Noah was well-pleasing to God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was full of wrongdoing. And the Lord God saw the earth, and it was ruined, for all flesh had ruined his way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The time of all humankind has come before me, for the earth has become full of wrongdoing by reason of them. And see, I am going to ruin them and the earth. Therefore, make yourself an ark of squared lumber. You shall make the ark with nests, and shall bitumenize it within and without with bitumen. And thus you shall make the ark, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, and the width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make the ark, bringing it together, and shall finish it to a cubit above. And the door you shall make in the side, you shall make it with ground floor, second story, and third story chambers. And for my part, look, I am going to bring the flood water on the earth to destroy under heaven all flesh in which is a spirit of life, and as many as there are on the earth shall perish. And I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives together with you. And of all the domestic animals, and of all the creeping things, and of all the wild animals, and of all flesh, you shall bring some of them all, two by two, into the ark, in order to sustain them together with yourself. They shall be male and female. Of all the winged birds, according to kind, and of all the domestic animals, according to kind, and of all the creeping things that creep upon the ground, according to their kind, two by two, some of them all shall come into you, to be sustained together with you, male and female. And you shall take for yourself some of all the provisions which you will eat, and shall gather them to yourself, and they shall be for you and for them to eat. 
And Noah did all the things that the Lord God commanded him, so he did. It's always interesting reading from the Septuagint because there are some pretty significant differences from most of our English translations of the Masoretic text. Yeah, that's right. Some parts of that reading are much more faithful to the original and other parts really lose it. We'll be talking more about that as we go along, of course, but I think what stands out to me the most as I read through that chapter is the way that there seems to be some kind of literary structure in play that deviates from what you would get in a normal, straightforward story. It's like Noah gets introduced to us twice. Yeah, what's up with that? That's what we're going to have to ask ourselves as we go through this story, because it looks for all the world like somebody has blended a couple of stories together. So we're going to explore that in some detail as we go along. So we've talked about the context of this story within the larger setting in the Bible. Are we going to talk about the cultural context that it was composed in? Yeah, absolutely. And I am planning to bring some comparative literature to the table so that we can get a better sense of what's going on. That's going to bring to light some creative use of particular language and symbolism and themes that will be important for our understanding. That's the kind of stuff we need if we're going to uncover the message of the author. And I thought I'd read a bit of that now. What I'm going to do is read for you a small portion from the story of Atrahasis. Ooh, that sounds interesting. So tell us a bit about that. All right. So this is a story that comes from the 18th century BC. It was written in Akkadian. I'm just going to read the portion that begins on tablet three of the story with the god Enki speaking to the man Atrahasis and warning him about the flood and how to survive. And I'm going to read up to the point where the flood has overtaken the earth and covered the world in darkness. All right, so we're in tablet three. Unfortunately, the first 10 lines are missing. And this is where we pick it up. Atrahasis made his voice heard and spoke to his master. Indicate to me the meaning of the dream. Let me find out its portent. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to his servant. You say I should find out in bed? Make sure you attend to the message I shall tell you. Wall, listen constantly to me. Read hut. Make sure you attend to all my words. Dismantle the house. Build a boat. Reject possessions and save living things. The boat that you build, roof it like the Apsu, so that the sun cannot see inside it. Make upper decks and lower decks. The tackle must be very strong. The bitumen strong to give strength. I shall make rain fall on you here, a wealth of birds, a hamper of fish. He opened the sand clock and filled it. He told him the sand needed for the flood was seven nights worth. Atrahasis received the message. He gathered the elders at his door. Atrahasis made his voice heard and spoke to the elders. My God is out of favor with your God. Enki and Elil have become angry with each other. They have driven me out of my house. Since I always stand in awe of Enki, he told me of this matter. I can no longer stay in. I cannot set my foot on Elil's territory again. I must go down to the Apsu and stay with my God. This is what he told me. Then we have a gap in the text. The carpenter brought his axe. The reed worker brought his stone. A child brought bitumen. The poor fetched what was needed. We have more damaged parts. And we get to the bit about stocking the ark with animals. Everything there was, pure ones, fat ones, he selected and put on board, the birds that fly in the sky, cattle of Shikan, wild animals of open country he put on board. He invited his people to a feast. He put his family on board. They were eating, they were drinking, but he went in and out, could not stay still or rest on his haunches. His heart was breaking and he was vomiting bile. The face of the weather changed. Adad bellowed from the clouds. When Atrahasis heard his noise, bitumen was brought, and he sealed his door. While he was closing up his door, Adad kept bellowing from the clouds. The winds were raging even as he went up and cut through the rope. He released the boat. A few lines missing there. 
And then it says, Anzu was tearing up the sky with his talons. The land, he broke. The flood came out. The Kazuzu weapon went against the people like an army. No one could see anyone else. They could not be recognized in the catastrophe. The flood roared like a bull, like a wild ass screaming. The winds howled. The darkness was total. There was no sun. Okay, so that's as far as I'm going to go with this reading. You might have noticed some things that seem to parallel the biblical flood story, as well as some things that were very different. As we go through this season of the podcast, I'm going to bring you a lot more flood stories. And with some of these, I'm going to just pick up certain elements and talk about those as opposed to detailed commentary. The Atrahasa story begins with humankind being created in order to do the work of the gods, but then the gods become discontent because of the noise made by humans. And after a few different attempts to subdue them, the gods eventually decide to send a flood to wipe out all the people. As we find is typically the case in these Mesopotamian stories, the god Enki is considered to be the smart one, and he's also the friend of the people. And he gives Atrahasis a tip about the coming flood to help him survive, because he knows that the gods will need people around in order to feed them. Since Enki is kind of crafty, he gets around his obligation to keep the plan of the gods secret by whispering the plan to the walls of the house where Atrahasis lives, and that means that Atrahasis finds out without being explicitly told. Yeah, people talk to the walls of houses all the time, don't they? There's nothing sus about that. Yeah, so naturally Atrahasis makes sure that he loads up this boat that he builds, and we're going to talk more about what he made the boat out of later on. And off they go to float around for a week while the flood destroys everything. But Atrahasis is a nice guy, and you could hear as we were reading the story how he was really cut up about the fact that so many people were going to die. So the gods in this story don't really agree about stuff. They sound like they weren't getting along at all. Yeah, that's pretty normal for Mesopotamian mythology. The gods are pretty much just like people, only more powerful. We're going to be talking a lot more about conflict in both the human and divine realms as we go through this season. Another thing that you might have noticed in the story was the way that the flood is talked about as a weapon, which went against the people like an army. That's another thing we're going to talk about in some detail through the course of this season. All right, well, that all sounds really interesting as usual. I can't wait to get stuck into it next week when we start our study in detail. So what's actually coming up next week? Next week, we're going to take a look at some more ancient Mesopotamian literature, which is going to help us to understand the story of the sons of God and the Nephilim as described in Genesis. And we're going to talk a little bit about what it was like for Judean captives in Babylon who went to school to get a good old Babylonian education courtesy of King Nebuchadnezzar. That sounds awesome as always. I can't wait. But right now, right now, this moment, it's time for Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. This one is an absolute doozy. Noah sent us a question via the website, giantanswers.com. Uh, and he says, as I'm reading the story of Jonah, some of the language used is really making me question what is actually going on. Should I understand this story as Jonah was, a literal swallowing and spitting out by fish, being swallowed alive into Sheol, or actually dying, going to Sheol, and then being resurrected? Also, as I was reading through all of the different views that people take, a few mentioned a possible connection between Jonah and the Apkalu named Oannes, and I have to say that some of the evidence sounded pretty convincing. Can you please help me to come to a clearer understanding of who Jonah is and what his story should tell us? 
Well, that's a great question, Noah. Thanks for sending it in, and it's particularly relevant as we get into this season of the podcast, because before long, we're going to be diving deep into the traditions of these Mesopotamian demigods known as the Abkalu. Why do I get the feeling that you are about to completely destroy everybody's Sunday school education again? I have no idea what you're talking about. I've talked on the podcast before about the man known as Adapa, who has a story similar to that of Enoch from Genesis 5. He gets summoned up to heaven. He's privy to the knowledge of the gods. He achieves some kind of glorified state. As far as the Enoch version, you really need to read First Enoch to get that in more detail, which is, of course, heavily dependent on the post-Babylonian context of the returning Jewish exiles. In other words, the book of First Enoch depends on these Apkalu traditions even more heavily than it does on Genesis 5. It's... Uh... That's interesting. I didn't realise that. And here I was hoping that this was going to be the inspiration for Aquaman. <laughs> Adapa is first associated with the Apkalu known as Yuan, Light of An, the Most High in Mesopotamian religion. This association comes from the story of his ascent and learning of the secrets of heaven in the story of Adapa and the South Wind. We've talked about that story before, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, but the Adapa story does not conclude with the hero disappearing into the heavens never to be seen again. In fact, he comes back down to earth where he emerges from the sea, having retained the divine secrets of heaven that he got while he was in the heavens. In this way, he becomes identified with the seventh Apkalu, known as Utu Abzu, literally born from the watery deep, which has biblical parallels with the concept of the Rephaim. The idea is that in this post-flood age, he has become the embodiment of the Apkalu sage Utu Abzu. This is a bit of a confluence of various traditions, which, according to the Bit Mazeri tablets, have Uwana as the first Apkalu and Utu Abzu, who is the seventh, and he's the one who has the ascent narrative in the Bible. That's Enoch, and both of those in different streams of Mesopotamian tradition focus on the wise sage Adapa as having some connection to one or other of those Abkalu. Now, imagine you're an Assyrian, you're down by the sea, suddenly this guy emerges from the water and he says, G'day, mate, my name's Yona, and I've got a message for you from the Most High God. You're going to pay attention. And people in the Bible have an experience like that. They generally uh, urinate in their pantaloons. Yeah, I retained no strength in my loins, etc. <laughs> now, the Adapa myth existed for a long time in ancient Mesopotamia, but when it was recorded by the Greeks, the hero took on a slightly different name. The Greek historian Berossus recorded his name as Oannes. That's not from Adapa, but from Uana. I think there's actually a pretty strong argument for the historicity of Jonah the prophet and his ministry to the Ninevites. We actually have the mention of him in the Old Testament outside of the book of Jonah, in the book of Jonah, he's referred to as Jonah, son of Amittai, a phrase that we find repeated in 2 Kings 14.25. So he's not just made up as some element of a fictional story. Keep in mind that if his name was just made up for the sake of relevance to these Mesopotamian traditions, then it would be completely out of place in 2 Kings. That name would have absolutely no functional value in that context. That's a good point. Now, it might be somewhat objectionable to our Christian sensitivities to have the idea that Jonah could be presented as a manifestation of one of the Apkalu rather than a representative of Yahweh. I just want to point out that he was presenting a message to Assyrians, not to Israelites. And the idea that God might accommodate them somewhat in his effort to extend mercy to them shouldn't be inconceivable to us. I just want to read you a short quote from a paper on this. Uh, this is Jonah in Nineveh, uh, which is written by... H. Clay Trumbull. Uh, I found this in the Journal of Biblical Literature from 1892, volume 11, number 1. 
And this was published by the Society of Biblical Literature. Here's the quote. It would certainly seem to be true that if God desired to impress upon all the people of Nineveh the authenticity of a message from himself, while leaving to themselves the responsibility of a personal choice as to obeying or disregarding his message, he could not have employed a fitter method than by sending that message to them in a way calculated to meet their most reverent and profound conceptions of a divinely authorized messenger. And this divine concession, as it might be called, to the needs and aspirations of a people of limited religious training would be in accordance with all that we know of God's way of working among men, as shown, for example, in his meeting of Joseph in Egypt through the divining cup and of the Chaldeans through their searching of the stars. That's the end of the quote. You might add in there Saul's use of necromancy, which was appropriated by God to convey his message to Saul. That's a slightly different example because Saul definitely does know better. But then as some scholars are pointing out, Saul was not necessarily a Yahwist. I think Trumbull makes a good point. And from the perspective of a Jewish divine council worldview, it's not unreasonable. Jonah comes to a foreign land with a message from the Most High God which is presented as having the appearance of coming in a fashion consistent with what the people would have expected from their own national gods, who in turn are subservient to the Most High. Stop making sense, Tim. You're making all our unreasonable objections sound uh, unreasonable. Having mentioned that we have reasonable grounds for the historicity of Jonah as a man, and having demonstrated that the miraculous appearance of him emerging from the sea actually has some benefit as far as it concerns the recipients of his message, it seems that we have no choice but to acknowledge that the message of repentance that Jonah brings to the Ninevites would only have had such impact if it were seen as a genuine appearing of a divinely appointed messenger emerging from the deep. What I'm saying there is that this whole miraculous thing serves no purpose if not to communicate to Jonah's audience. It wasn't just for the benefit of Jonah. Fair point, and it would make Jesus look pretty silly if he was alluding to a story that didn't even happen to make his own point in the Gospels. Yeah, so we've managed to get this far. We've seen the thematic connection made between Oannes, or Adapa, and Jonah. And obviously we know that it's a literary connection here in Scripture, not a real thing. Nobody's suggesting that those two people were actually one and the same. But knowing that the conceptual connection between those two characters was necessary for Jonah's message to be considered authentic by the people of historic Nineveh, that tells us that a literal emergence from the sea would have been required to authenticate the message. That means that we have to take the story seriously when it says that Jonah was indeed swallowed by a big fish and later regurgitated on the beach. But does it mean that we have to take the story literally? You mean there's a difference? There definitely is a difference, but I'm going to say yes and no. I think that the story of Jonah, as is the case with many biblical narratives, presents not one narrative layer, but two. We've already discussed the literal events, but what is the author doing as he conveys that story to his audience? I think that most conventional interpretations of this story appear to miss what's going on in the text. We tend to read it as though the fish itself is representative of death or being in Sheol, the realm of the dead. And it's not hard to understand why, because when we read the Gospels, we have Jesus talking about the sign of Jonah. In other words, it's our understanding of Christ in the Christian era that we read back into the story of Jonah. Here's Matthew chapter 12, uh, from verses 39 to 41 in the NIV. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The question is, if Jonah presented a sign to the men of Nineveh, what was the nature of the sign, and why was it effective? Let's think about the story. Did the men of Nineveh know that Jonah had been inside a fish for three days? 
The story only tells us that he was vomited onto the dry land by big fish. That's all that they could have witnessed, assuming it literally happened like that. The men of Nineveh were not on the boat with Jonah, nor were they in the water, or in the fish for that matter, with him. The sign that was given them was the emergence of Jonah from the sea. It wasn't the fact that he'd been inside a fish for three days. I think Jesus has actually been quite generous with his audience by including the detail of the three days in order to ensure that nobody would miss the correlation between his crucifixion and resurrection and the story of Jonah. But was Jonah actually dead for three days? Again, yes and no. And I'm saying that for the same reason that I wouldn't say that Jesus Christ was dead for three days. I would argue that in both cases, we have a person who suffered and died in the space of a short time and who was then absent from the sight of other humans for three days before emerging bodily in the presence of witnesses having experienced resurrection. Certainly, Jesus would not have used this argument from Jonah in his discourse with the Sadducees who deny the resurrection if he didn't think this was the case. Now, that means that since the bodily resurrection was witnessed three days after physical death, something else must have been going on in the meantime, and that means that it probably wasn't happening in a physically embodied state. Let's just read chapter 2 here to get a bit more of a feel for it. So this is the book of Jonah, chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, did you notice that when Jonah prays to God inside the fish, he speaks as though he has already been saved from death? That means he isn't dead anymore, and yet his body is apparently inside a fish in the water, so he can't be alive in there either, at least bodily. So regardless of what's happening to Jonah's flesh and blood, he's living, expressing his thanksgiving for his apparent rescue from the realm of the dead, and yet not alive in the flesh. So what's going on with Jonah in this intermediate state? To get some idea of that, we're going to have to look into the language employed by the author of the book. The first thing we notice in the text when paying attention to the Hebrew is that the storm that arises is in the sea rather than on it. It's a storm that God hurls upon the sea, which is suggestive of a violent act in keeping with Mesopotamian traditions about the use of the storm as a weapon. For example, in Enuma Elish and the battle between Marduk and Tiamat. And we're just reading that in the Atrahasis as well. Here's a little nugget for you. According to Barossus, it was the sage Adapa who brought to the Mesopotamians the Enuma Elish story. So it's interesting that literary allusions to it should appear in the biblical story of Jonah. That's super cool. I don't think most people would have picked up on that. Yeah, there are some other interesting literary hints that are designed to make us think about Jonah being in the realm of the dead. The author says that the sailors tried to row back to the land, but the word used for rowing is actually the Hebrew word for digging. That's interesting because the only other place where that word is used in the context of somebody trying to escape from God is in the book of Amos chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, which says, Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, 
There I will command the serpent to bite them. So we've got the word for digging there, which is employed in its natural sense in this passage, which would usually be digging through a wall or something like that. And in the context, it's specifically digging into Sheol in an attempt to escape from the wrath of God. And then we find that the serpent makes an appearance in this passage at the bottom of the sea. The serpent is a term translated by the Septuagint as Katos, the sea monster. And that is the same term employed by the authors of the Septuagint to describe the big fish in the book of Jonah. Of course, that's going to make the audience think about Leviathan, and that's no surprise really when we consider that the setting of this drama is in a ship on the sea, just like Psalm 104 verses 25 to 26. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. Now, the Bible does not describe Leviathan as a fish. But he is described as a sea monster, or in Hebrew, a tanin. Ancient Canaanite literature uses the term tanin interchangeably with lotan, which is cognate with the Hebrew leviathan, or leviathan. Getting back to the Septuagint, we find that the term for great sea monsters used in Genesis 1.21 is again katos, where the Hebrew has tanin. Other language suggestive of the Leviathan motif is the use of the shipmaster, or literally the chief of the ropes, who is helpless in the situation, which reminds us of the book of Job and the futility of attempting to subdue the Leviathan with ropes. Job chapter 40 verse 1, can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Then you have the language of the domain of Leviathan. This is classic cosmic geography language where we have the seas and the deep. Literally, they are the Yamim and Tehom. And then we have another passage where currents is used, or literally rivers, which comes from the Hebrew Nahar. Again, turning to Canaanite literature, we find that Nahar, like Yam, is a name of the Leviathan. What we're supposed to be understanding here is that in as much as the sea is personified by the Leviathan, Jonah's big fish fulfills the same role. We're not supposed to think of the fish as being a creature in the sea as much as he is the sea itself. That's an interesting way to think about it. I reckon most modern readers wouldn't be thinking that way. Yeah. I'm just going to read you a very quick little quote from another paper on this topic. This is from Jonah and Leviathan, Inner Biblical Illusions and the Problem with Dragons, by Scott B. Nogle, University of Washington. Here's the quote. Abetting the illusion is the curious fact that Jonah is cast into the sea, but lands in the mouth of the fish. And yet he describes his descent as an act of drowning. The congruency has troubled readers, but suffice it to note here that it results in identifying the fish, like Leviathan, with the sea. That's the end of the quote. That means that Jonah is spending his time not inside a literal fish, but in cosmological terms, in the heart of the underworld, the realm of chaos, the great deep. He's in the land of the dead. You notice in chapter 2, actually, he never talks about being inside a fish. He does talk about being dead. He actually says that straight out in verse 2. He talks about the land beneath having bars. He talks about the roots of the mountains. This is all cosmic geography. And you can see how Jesus uses Jonah as his example when we consider what First Peter says about what Jesus was doing in the underworld before the resurrection. Again, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to talk about the sign of Jonah unless it would have been apparent to those witnesses of his resurrection that there was a valid correspondence there. And that extends beyond the resurrection where there would have been a preaching of repentance to the Gentiles in order to turn them away from the coming wrath of God. So Jonah tries to run away from the Lord, and he ends up being cast into the sea, the realm of chaos and death. And he actually dies in the water. Yeah, 
while he's dead, he goes to the realm of the dead. There he's given a second chance and he's restored back to life and returned to dry land. His appearance from the sea is enough to convince the men of Nineveh that they need to take his message seriously. Consequently, God has used Jonah's rebellion to save not only the sailors aboard the ship who swore allegiance to Yahweh in chapter 1, but also the men of Nineveh. So that's a pretty good outcome then. Hopefully this is enough to put an end to any efforts to try and find a fish that could possibly have swallowed a man whole and carried him about for several days before depositing him alive on the beach. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense than the Sunday school story. So to answer Noah's question directly, was Jonah A, swallowed by a big fish and spat out alive, B, swallowed up by the realm of the dead where he remained alive and subsequently returned from there, or C, actually dead and brought back to life having experienced some time in the underworld? I'm going with option C, which is a non-literal interpretation of the fish, as made clear by the author's use of cosmic geographical imagery and the use of the Leviathan motif. It's all there when you pay attention to the words on the page. Yeah, maybe we just need to, to slow down and read things more carefully as modern readers. Yeah, I'm also suggesting that Jonah was a historical figure, as mentioned in the Bible outside of the book of Jonah, but the real thrust of the historicity of the story is the fact that in order for the story to remain internally consistent, the men of Nineveh had to have witnessed his emergence from the sea in order to give legitimacy to his message. In other words, I think it defies belief that the men of Nineveh would just take the word of some Jewish prophet who came from a different land and believed in a different god if it wasn't for the fact that they had witnessed Jonah coming up out of the sea in a manner consistent with their own mythology around the person of Adapa and his connection to Uana. I think there's a powerful message in the story of Jonah in that whatever we might purpose for evil or rebellion, God is still able to use in order to bring about his purpose. Not that it should be an encouragement for us to live in rebellion, but instead we should be comforted by the sovereign control of God, which ultimately works out for our good. And perhaps we might realize that we're better off just being obedient in the first place. Ultimately, though, the story is about recognizing the higher purposes of God in relation to our own personal circumstances. All right. Well, that was a, a great question about a fascinating book. I think I'm going to have to go and sit down and read the whole book of Jonah again very carefully this time. And that's all we have time for this week. What a great way to start season six of the podcast. Yeah, that was a good one. And we're just getting started. Next week, we're back for another episode full of geekery and nerdity. So stick around. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Subjugant. Subjugant. Remind me. <laughs> Whatever you're comfortable with. I don't mind. Uh, I'm not comfortable with any of it, Tim. Any of it. <laughs>
You want me to read scripture? What is this? Um, so do you want me to say no or no? Uh, just, 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 just no, read Tim, it. I need comfortable. answers. <laughs> I need direction. Oh, I'm a know. single man. I'm looking for people <laughs> to tell me what to do. So that'll prepare <laughs> me for marriage. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're, you're more comfortable saying Noah and, you know, Sam Ham, Jacob. That's what I'm doing. You can do that. Noah was well-pleasing to God. And Noah had three sons, Sam, Ham, and another guy. <laughs> Greeks don't have the letter J. Oh, man. Look, you can read the scripture going forward. Uh, Japheth, isn't it? Japheth? Yeah. Japheth? Yeah. And Noah had three sons. Sam, Sam. <laughs> You do it, Tim. You do it. I'm, I'm signing out. Do it. It's silly. Do it. Do it. Just do it. You're on a roll. Go for it. All right. It's always interesting reading from the Septuagint. <laughs> Is there another word for Septuagint? <laughs> you could say the Greek translation. 